Turning to the bookstall, I picked out Fantasties, a fairy romance by George MacDonald. That night, my imagination was, in a certain sense, baptized. The rest of me, not unnaturally, took longer. I had not the faintest notion of what I'd let myself in for by buying Fantasties. This is Pints for Jack, Season 5, Episode 27. MacDonald and Fantasties. After Hours with Dr. Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson. Good morning, everyone. Pints for Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we read The Four Loves, but today we're turning to George MacDonald. In this After Hours episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson. Dr. Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson is a George MacDonald scholar who lives in the Ottawa Valley, Canada. She writes and lectures internationally on MacDonald's, the 19th century, the Inklings, and faith and the arts. She directs Linlatham, a theology and arts conference and lecture series based in rural Ontario. She is on the advisory board of the Inklings Journal 7, a founding board member of the C.S. Lewis and Kindred Society of Eastern and Central Europe, and co-chair of the George MacDonald Society. Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, welcome to Pints with Jack. It's a delight and pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. You're very welcome. We have ignored George MacDonald now for far too long. Uh, at, at some point, possibly next season, we will have a MacDonald month. But as I was wrapping up the planning for this season, I realized that it must be some kind of sin to have a C.S. Lewis podcast for five seasons and yet never have a single episode on the man whom Lewis declared to be his master. And so that's why, after seeing you on the Fantasy Makers documentary, I tracked you down and invited you onto the show. Well, Jack would be delighted, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I've got a few goals for today's episode. Uh, at the end of it, I would like all of our listeners to learn a little bit more about George MacDonald. Mm -hmm. I would like them to feel confident in tackling Fantasties, and I'd also like for them to get a real sense of what it was about the man and his work which so shaped C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. So I am drinking some Mystic Monk coffee. What are you drinking? I am drinking some hot apple cider made from apples pressed by my neighborhood. We do that every year annually. We press apples and we freeze some for Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter. How civilized. <laughs> well, cheers. Cheers. Slange. So before we get to talking about McDonald, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your background? I grew up on a farm. Um, speaking of apples being pressed in farm on farms, I grew up on a farm in rural and forested part of Canada called the Ottawa Valley. Originally Anishinaabe lands, but by the time my ancestors immigrated there, they are part of a large flux of Scots and Irish who'd been cleared from the old country. So because of that, I grew up with a deep sense and love both of that culture and of that place. And I think that is significant for my own studies of MacDonald. After grad school at Regent College, Vancouver, I lived in Oxford where I first started teaching in Queen's literature. Then I did a PhD in St. Andrews, Scotland on MacDonald. And then in France, I finished up that work before returning here to the Ottawa Valley. Where now I, as you alluded to, I steward a piece of land that's part farm and part wilderness and invest in relationship building. Um, as an academic seeking to bridge literature, theology, and how we dwell in this world. 
as a landowner seeking to know my community well, the people, the place, and the various other inhabitants of that place, be they flora or fauna, and introducing each to the other, and as a friend, delighting and sharing my friends of all walks of life with each other, be they friends in the flesh, so to speak, or friends on the page, like McDonald and Lewis. Well, how did you first encounter McDonald? And was it love at first read, or did it take a little more than that? I was about five or six when someone said to me, you love Narnia, so I bet you'd love these other stories about a princess and some goblins. And so I read those books, and it was kind of love at first read. Um, Not long afterwards, I'd made my way through a number of the fairy tales and short stories in a little box binding that I had that was illustrated by Pauline Baines, the illustrator of the Narnia books. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it wasn't long before those books were well creased and the bindings well bent or even broken. Now, folks who have read Surprised by Joy will at least have some idea of the importance of MacDonald to Lewis. And if they've read my favorite book, The Great Divorce, they know that he features there as well. Uh, but would you mind unpacking how MacDonald appeared to Lewis and, and uh, shaped him in his life? Yeah, I would love to do that. McDonald was sort of a lifelong touchstone for Lewis, a friend of the page, as we were talking about, that from teenagedom until his death, Lewis was incessantly urging his friends and acquaintances to read. When Lewis first decides that he likes Tolkien, for instance, he writes home to his best friend, Arthur Greaves, and says that one of the reasons that Tolkien would fit in right in with them is because he too grew up reading McDonald. That's a marker for a good person that he grew up reading McDonald. <laughs> um, Lewis speaks of McDonald in ways that he speaks of no other writer, be the theologian, philosopher, or novelist. In writing to one friend about the importance of teachers of the faith, Lewis references people like Augustine, like Athanasius, like Hooker. And then he proceeds to explain that for himself, it's to George MacDonald that he owes his greatest debt, which is, you know, not a name you might necessarily expect in a list like that. (laughs) Um, He unpacks this further as an anthology of MacDonald quotations where he writes, and I'm going to read some of these quotations of MacDonald for you and your listeners, just so people don't think I'm going overboard in what I'm saying. I'll let Lewis go overboard on his own. Uh, C.S. Lewis unpacks this further in his anthology of George MacDonald quotations, where he writes, and I quote Lewis directly here, I have never concealed the fact that I regard him, MacDonald, as my master. Indeed, I fancy I have never written a book in which I did not quote from him. And then Lewis continues, he goes on, but it has not seemed to me and I say those words in italics, but it has not seemed to me that those who have received my books kindly take even now sufficient notice of the affiliation. Honesty drives me to emphasize it. This is the only anthology Lewis publishes. He doesn't publish an anthology of any other writer, and it's a pretty significant effort to introduce MacDonald not just to his friends, but to the wider reading world. Because it's a book of short excerpts, Lewis doesn't see it as a replacement for reading Lewis, reading McDonald's fiction, which I think some people kind of, you know, thought, okay, I'll just read 
Lewis's quotations of McDonald, and that's sufficient, <laughs> right? But this is just an introduction of Lewis's to his readers on how McDonald thinks about God and faith. Most of the quotations are not from McDonald's fiction. Most of the quotations are from his collection of written sermons called Unspoken Sermons. And I'll read you another quote by Lewis. This is what Lewis says about Unspoken Sermons. Lewis says, My own debt to this book is almost as great as one man can owe to another. And nearly all serious inquirers to whom I've introduced it, this book, Unspoken Sermons, acknowledge that it has given them great help, sometimes indispensable help, towards the very acceptance of the Christian faith. You've inferred, David, already that most Lewis readers know of MacDonald through the references in Surprise by Joy. And it's there that Lewis explains to his readers how his teenage discovery of MacDonald's short novel, Fantasties, his fantasy novel, Fantasties, really triggers a whole life pivot for him, right? He wrote that it called him across a great frontier. Again, Lewis's words, not mine. And that now in the famous phrase, reading Fantasties baptized his imagination. And upon reading the book, Lewis immediately wrote to his best friend, to Arthur Greaves, insisting that he read it too. You know, that was his first response. As soon as he reads it, he says to his best friend, you have to, he sits down and writes his best friend, says, you have to read this too. And it's not just fantasies, but McDonald's writings generally for Lewis, for the remainder of his life, he never stops in his mission of trying to get others to read fantasies or McDonald generally. His entire life, like the rest of his life, up until he dies, he is constantly, <laughs> not like a one-off fascination. He is constantly saying to people, read fantasies. He speaks of reading it himself as almost a devo devotional book through his young adulthood. This is pre-becoming a Christian, pre-conversion. He never stops rereading it. When recovering from the physical, mental, emotional traumas of war, what does he read when he's convalescing? Fantasties. He recommends it to other people in convalescence. Um, he talks of how it taught him of, quote, holiness. That's his word before he had a name for holiness. He recommends it to those who are struggling to understand the concept of truth. He writes in one letter. He says, isn't Fantasties good? It did a lot for me years before I became Christian, when I had no idea what was behind it. This has always made, so this experience of his with Fantasties, this has always made it easier for me to understand how the better elements in mythology can be a real preparatory evangelica for people who do not yet know whether they are being led. And after his own conversion to Christianity, Lewis writes of his realization that he was, and again, I'm going to quote Lewis here, that he was, quote, still with MacDonald after he'd become a Christian. He says, I was still with MacDonald. And I realized that he had accompanied me all the way. And I was now at last ready to hear from him much that he could not have told me at that first meeting. But in a sense, what MacDonald was now telling me was the very same that he had told me from the beginning. There was no question of getting through to the kernel and throwing away the shell. No question of a gilded pill. The pill was gold all through. So already before conversion, Lewis has also started reading um, Diary of an Old Soul, which is a book-length poem, every night before bed, 
um, a stanza, the, the poem has a stanza for each day of the year. So he would read a stanza before bed, again, like a devotional text. And he even, again, calls it from his <laughs> devotional reading. And he continues to do that after he becomes a Christian. And Warney actually, in a letter, Warney references doing the same thing, going to bed with a cup of cocoa and reading his stanza of Diary of an Old Soul. And then only months before his death, when Lewis is asked what books did most to shape his vocational attitude, those are the words, what books did most to shape your vocational attitude and your philosophy of life? He lists Herbert, he lists Virgil, he lists Chesterton's Everlasting Man, but at the very top of the list, the first book that shaped his vocational attitude and philosophy of life, this is at the end of his life, Lewis says, McDonald's Fantasties. So it has stuck with him his entire life. It's not a flash in the pan for him. Lewis's description there of what MacDonald did for him and about how when he eventually became a Christian, uh, he found that MacDonald had been saying the same thing to him all throughout. There wasn't anything mm -hmm. that needed to be thrown away, but, but he was now encountering things more directly. Yeah. I can speak for myself and I'm sure for many of our listeners, this is what Lewis did for us. We first yeah. encountered him in Aslan the Great Lion in Narnia. And then as an adult, we then started to discover his other literature, his apologetics, his philosophy. And we now look back and we see he was telling us this already. Mm -hmm. It's just the form mm -hmm. changed and now he could be a little bit more direct about it. Yeah, yeah. But I have a question because Lewis made this such a, a mission and I've started digging into his letters now. And yes, he keeps mentioning... MacDonald and Fantasties. Why is it that MacDonald still remains fairly unknown to many Lewis fans? And, and I say this as a layman, but I do get the impression that he has also been largely overlooked by the scholarly community uh, with regards to the Lewis scholarship. Why? That's such a good question. And I've really struggled with finding a good answer to that good question. Um, not least because in all honesty, I actually know more Lewis fans who know McDonald's writings quite well than I do Lewis scholars who know Lewis's work well. Yeah, I agree. That's where the biggest lacuna is, is amongst Lewis scholars. So uh, what's up with that? <laughs> I love dearly and respect deeply many Lewis scholars in my life. And I this is a question I've really struggled with. And years ago, I decided that it was largely due to some missteps on Lewis's own part, actually. I think he, he bears a little bit of huh. the burden for that. In his in introduction to the anthology that I talked about, um, which is also, unfortunately, um, it's sort of redacted and reproduced in part in the Erdman's version of Fantasties. So people even get they get just bits and parts of this introduction, not even the full introduction. But un unfortunately, they Erdman's reproduces some of the problematic parts or what I would call problematic parts. But in that introduction, Lewis writes how of how he himself would not place MacDonald in, quote, the first rank of writers. Nor even perhaps, mm. please note, Lewis uses the word perhaps second rank. So you, you re recall that, that passage? Yeah, okay, so I, I remember me. being quite surprised when I read the anthology and it was like, oh, he says some things that are actually negative here. I was expecting nothing but hagiography and hero worship. I think, I think what you've said there is really important um, because I think Lewis is very intentionally trying to show his audience that this is not hagiography, that he's thinking through critically. But, you know, you know Lewis quite well, David. If 
You were thinking about how Lewis tiered writers, first tier, second tier, third tier, fourth. Who would you put in the very first tier of Lewis writers, writers for Lewis? Well, it, it, the trouble is the, the well has been kind of poisoned because my first response is to say, oh, well, George MacDonald, obviously, uh, because I know that he appeared number one in the list for that magazine uh, and alongside people like G.K. Chesterton and also the great writers of antiquity. Well, and I think that's where I'm leaning is, you know, he's not talking about writers he loves here, but the tiers of greatest writers of all time, right? And I think those latter ones would be who's there, the great writers of antiquity, Plato, maybe Dante, maybe Chaucer, first tier, right? So that's what how I understand mm, Augustine. what Lewis is saying here, right? He's, so he's not going to put MacDonald up with Chaucer and Plato. Um, mm. Who's in the second tier? I don't know, is, uh, do we fall as deep as Dickens and Austin, or are we sort of just at Shakespeare? Where does Chesterton fall in there? I don't know. But when thinking it in that light, to say that MacDonald is perhaps in the second tier, perhaps not, I think really shifts how you think of that, that comment, that statement. It's not actually a big slam to say he's not in the first tier of writers, because McDonald would be appalled if somebody said he was a Plato or a Dante, right? And I think most people would be very happy to be counted alongside Jane Austen and Persuasion. It's like, oh, you think I'm that good? Okay, I'll take it. One of the things that I did think he was doing when he made that comment was speaking as a literary critic and somebody mm -hmm. who has read the Western mm -hmm. canon and everything. And the authors who are consistently high quality and of a high literary standard. Because he has some complaints about what MacDonald does. Sometimes it really seems like he's just looking for an excuse to preach a sermon. Uh, but you, you can't do that with some of these, these other greats. And it also shows the difference between something being great high literature and still being really important and really impactful. I think, I think that is something very important to be aware of but also to tease out because I think that also sometimes becomes a bit of an excuse that I hear also amongst scholars. Well, McDon Lewis looked up to McDonald spiritually, but not as a writer. Um, and that's why I, I want to push back into this. He's not first tier, perhaps second tier. So if second tier is Austin or Shakespeare, Lewis continues on in the sentences after that. And I, you know, it's, it's like biblical criticism, reading, reading the Bible. Okay, what's the larger context? Don't just pull out those few sentences, but what's the larger context of what's being said here? Lewis carries on in that paragraph to say, yeah, McDonald's writing sometimes even stoops to the faults of a Sir Walter Scott or a Novalis. He says, sometimes McDonald stoops. <laughs> so right and, you know, in that sentence, he's putting McDonald above Walter Scott and Novalis. So, you know, we have to we have to be really careful about how we're reading Lewis the literary critic here. Cuz Lewis is thinking carefully about what he's saying too. He's not wanting to do hagiography. He's wanting to show that he has thought through things carefully. But I think today at with our modern eyes, we read the criticism as being more weighty than what Lewis necessarily intended. In fact, Lewis is then goes on in the next sentence to say, in my opinion, quotation, in my opinion, MacDonald writes fantasy better than any man. So I think reading the, the 
the whole that whole bit in its full context is really important. You know, then then the next thing McDonald Lewis says, he starts to talk about mythopoeia as perhaps the greatest mm -hmm. of all the arts. So big statement. Lewis says he thinks mythopoeia is the greatest of all the arts. And he says he believes that McDonald is the greatest crafter of the greatest of the arts. So yeah, I think I think McDonald's trying to point out McDonald or Lewis is trying to point out McDonald's imperfections so that the readers understand he's not blindly worshiping the Scottish writer. Um, he knows that he's imperfect, but despite those imperfections, McDonald's writings, above even those in the first rank of writers, are the writings that have most changed, shaped, directed Lewis's Christian life and not just his Christian life. And so Lewis tells us at the end of his life and his literary vocation, right? So McDonald's not just shaping his faith walk. McDonald is shaping his literary vocation. Um, and this is, this is the sentence in our cancel culture that I do think, you know, something you're alluding to earlier is so important. Lewis then goes on to say, so I'm taking us through, through the introduction here. Lewis then goes on to say, <laughs> quote, I dare not say, that MacDonald is never in error. But to speak plainly, I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continually close to the spirit of Christ himself. So don't say he's never in error, but, and I think in an age in which the word cancel has taken on new meaning, this sentence is so important. Lewis doesn't agree with everything MacDonald says. Lewis doesn't agree with everything any human says. And yet, despite sometimes disagreeing with him, Lewis says, I know of hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continually close to the spirit of Christ himself. So I guess for years, I've kind of chalked up the lacuna and resistance to an uncareful reading or maybe a not, not informed I, now I don't want, want to be rude to you as you had an uninformed reading. That was the same reading <laughs> I had at first. But I think understanding even the cultural context of the words that Lewis is using. I certainly wish that Lewis had rewritten some of those sentences. But when I look at the whole mm -hmm. introduction, what he's saying there, I think that helps me understand some of what he's saying. I think generally his readership has not read that introduction well. But I mean, that aside, I recently challenged a Zoom room full of Lewis scholars on this very question. Okay, guys, you know, you've all known me for 20 years. Many of you have known me for 20 years and you still <laughs> have not thoroughly read Fantasties or read much McDonald's. So why? Help me understand why. And in the end, the one answer that they seemed to agree on was... <laughs> was that McDonald just wrote so much that they feel like there's too much to read before they can speak authoritatively. Okay, so I don't think fast on my feet. I'm a writer. I'm not an orator. And so it wasn't till afterwards that I had a gazillion rebuttals to that. But mm -hmm. I think the most succinct one for me, the Victorian scholar who is not succinct, I think my most succinct response to that answer is Chesterton. 
I mean, if you are ready to discuss the importance of Chesterton upon Lewis's writing, you have absolutely no grounds to argue that you're overwhelmed by the volume of McDonald's output, right? Absolutely. Chesterton was a journalist. He wrote every day. I, I, if you even tried to read just his books alone, let alone every article, that's a full-time career. It, it's, it's on a par with St. Augustine. When someone tells me they've read all of Augustine, I immediately just want to call them a liar, just because I just don't think such a thing is, is possible. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's a very good excuse at all. It, no, it just doesn't stand, because how many Lewis scholars can you name who avoid Chesterton? I mean, they, they just don't. But I think there is one other hurdle that's worth considering in regards to Lewis scholarship. And it comes back to historical context um, in knowing biography well, but also I think kind of points that finger at an uncomfortable place in our 21st century, 20th century, 21st century Christianity, actually. And I think it lies in the misidentification of MacDonald as a struggling pastor who wrote fiction on the side. And because that's been his primary identity for most of the scholarship, like the 20th century and 21st century scholarship on him, that's how he's been identified as a struggling pastor who wrote fiction on the side. And because of that, I think scholars have failed to take account of MacDonald as both a writer and himself a scholar. Um, and I think maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm still wrestling through this, but I think perhaps this is in part because, and possibly especially in North America, we still think of ministry in the pulpit as more vocation worthy, as more, yeah, as a, as a more worthy vocation, as a holier vocation than being a steward, mm. teacher, and writer of story. So if McDonald's important to Christians, he's important because he's a pastor, not he's important because he was a literature professor for 40 years, because he was a literature critic, because he was a storyteller. Um, but McDonald was only a professional minister for months of his life. He was professionally a teacher, literary critic for over 40 years. Which, you know, so the minister thing should hardly even be mentioned in reference to him, right? Like for 40 years versus a few months, um, in addition to his being a crafter of literature. But I think this is especially important when thinking about C.S. Lewis, because I think we too frequently overlook Lewis's university profession. I think often people overlook his, voc his life vocation as a literature scholar and teacher. So how can we examine how MacDonald has influenced Lewis in this capacity when we're actually not even spending enough time looking at Lewis as a literary scholar? And I think until we spend more time delving into Lewis as a literary scholar, we're not going to get to the depths of what he has to teach us theologically. Okay, so I think before we go any further, we've actually got to paint a little bit of a portrait of this man that we've been talking about who was so important to Lewis. So could you share with us some of... McDonald's background, where did he grow up, mm -hmm. how was he educated, what was his religious upbringing, what do we really need to know about him? Yeah, McDonald was born in Scotland in 1824. He's almost a perfect Victorian, 1824 to 1905 are his dates. And he grew up in what I can only imagine to have been a busy, noisy farmhouse, um, as it had both his father's family and his uncle's family in it. I've been in the house, it's it's a good size, but it'd be small for two families to fit into it um, on a farm. 
And people sometimes mistakenly think that McDonald grew up in his federal Calvinist grandmother's home. Um, that's sort of a liter uh, historical myth that persists. And it's important to note, I think, that while McDonald didn't live too far away from her, she lived in the town, he lived on a farm, he did not live with her. I don't know about you, but my own home that I grew up in was very different from my grandmother's house and the worldview that oh, yes. existed within my grandmother's house. Yeah. Um, and it's clear from letters and biographical poems that the house in which McDonald actually grew up was full of fun and games and great storytelling and reading and science, a pretty good library with the Arabian tales, Coleridge, Milton, Scottish folklore, and more. McDonald talks about lying on the back of his horse, reading some of these books as a kid. It was a home in which theological discussion was encouraged and even disagreement with the pastor, with the preacher was allowed in the household. It was something that he and his father discussed, you know, after church on a Sunday, what did you disagree with? What did you agree with? It was not a dour or a repressive home at all, which is unfortunately the, the image that a lot of people have. One of McDonald's grandfathers was a Catholic-born, fiddle-playing Presbyterian elder. His other grandfather was a Highland wow. Episcopalian minister. His dour grandmother, of whom we hear so much, she was actually an independent church rebel. So she was with a group of people that broke off from the Presbyterian church and kind of started their own independent church. One of his uncles was a Gaelic-speaking radical famed for telling Celtic fairy tales, and he actually became the moderator of the Disrupting Free Church. Another uncle was a Shakespeare scholar. So merely using the word, the tag Calvinist for McDonald's theological background, it's, you know, it's handy, but honestly, I think it's, it's just, it's a bit facile. Um, it's, it's too simplistic and misleading. And we all have different ideas of what that word Calvinist means, too. They may be negative, they may be positive, they, they may be a mix. Um, and it's just, it's actually not a very useful term to understand who MacDonald was. Educationally, Scottish public education was leagues ahead of England at the time. Literacy in Scotland's way ahead of, of England at this point in time. And MacDonald had a good foundation in the classics, as did his parents. In fact, the youth from the church that McDonald grew up in produced. So this the youth group, out of his, his youth group came all sorts of scholars, missionaries, pastors that ended up in different denominations and disciplines. And the town would actually invite some of these youth group kids back to the town when they got older. And Huntley, still today in Aberdeenshire, is quite a small town. But they'd invite these people back to give topics as varied as Tennyson. McDonald would come back and lecture on Tennyson. And Confucius, James Legg, who went on to Oxford to be a famous Orientalist, um, and he's still studied in China today. He'd come back and teach on Confucius in this little Victorian Scottish town. Um, so while there was unquestionably a repressive conservative Calvinism active in the community, and Actually, MacDonald at one point identifies an, quote, American Calvinism that he believes has tainted Scotland. So that's something he actually identifies. That's not the only expression of faith he knew in his youth, nor even the dominant one in the home in which he was raised. And I think that's really important to say and spell out because I think that's, you know, that's something even Lewis gets wrong and Chesterton gets wrong and their, their biographies are limited they don't have access to primary material. So, you know, do not go to Lewis for your biographical 
background on McDonald because he, he doesn't quite have it sorted. But um, but he's got lots of excuse because lots of scholars up until the last couple of decades have made these claims. So highly literate family, pretty ecumenically diverse community, perhaps most colored by the dichotomy between Calvinism and Celtic Christianity. And then he goes off to Aberdeen University um, and he'll be a bit saucy. He took some prizes in what he studied at Aberdeen. Any guesses on what? Uh, science? <laughs> Good guess, yeah. He took prizes in chemistry and natural philosophy, um, which is essentially you know, physics, yeah. etc. Yeah, so well done. <laughs> yeah, McDonald's initial intent was to study medicine, chemistry, or mathematics in Europe. Um, that was that was his first love. That's what maybe it's errant to say his first love, but that's what he hoped to study. Um, and but he was deterred by lack of finances. His family didn't have enough money for that to happen, so he heads down to London. At that point in time, the largest city in the world, um, and tutors down there for three years. And he attends seminary, and he becomes a congregational pastor in the town of Arundel. So he grew up in an independent independent church, um, and also attended sometimes the Presbyterian Church, the Church of Scotland. Um, but the seminary he goes to is Congregationalist, and then he, as an adult, becomes an Anglican. So he goes off his his first only parish in the town of Arundel, and his less dogmatic views, let us say, you know, a big emphasis on the love of God over the judgment of God. Um, so his less dogmatic views displease some of the congregants, and that results in a lowered salary. And after 28 months, he resigns. Now, I think it's really important, again, to point out that he fares a lot better than the two ministers before him in that church who were both fired. So, you know, fired minister, fired minister. Then McDonald comes along and they just lower his salary. So in a sense, you know, he was, he was doing better than his <laughs> predecessors. Um but even before then, McDonald had written in letters to his brother and to his father um, about how he wanted to be a writer. In fact, his father writes some letters saying, are you sure you want to go to seminary? I think you'd be a good teacher. And sure enough, after 28 months as, as a vocational pastor, McDonald moves to Manchester with his wife, Louisa, and his growing family to be closer to his mentor, A.J. Scott. He was a theologian, a social reformer, and actually was the first ever full-time English literature professor. So he's really McDonald's mentor in this love of teaching literature. And while he's there, he teaches chemistry. He gives literature lectures. He helps pastor a home church um, on and off, but he has really bad tubercular issues. A lot of his family actually died from tubercular issues. Um, they got quite serious. And Lady Byron, uh, wife of the poet, who had loved some of his writings that she that he had that she had read. She had enjoyed the work of his that she that she had read. And so she decides to be a bit of a patron and she actually funds a trip to Algiers for McDonald to recover from his health. And he ends up doing a little bit of secretarial work for her which I think feeds into his lifelong, um, I think actually disgust is not too strong of a word, of Byron. Uh, a little bit of a tip. If you're reading a McDonald novel, and uh, should I give this away? If somebody is obsessed with Byron and trying to get other people to be read Byron, 
guaranteed he's a baddie. <laughs> no question. We think, you know, they find Byron intriguing. They're not sure. They're more obsessed with Shelly. They could go either way. But if they're obsessed with Byron, not a good sign at all. But so Lady Byron invests in him and actually left, left money to him in her will. But when he comes back from Algiers, back to England, that's when he becomes fully committed to his vocation as a literature teacher, whether in the classroom, the lecture hall, on the page. He gave hundreds and hundreds of lectures on, really interestingly, on only British literature and Dante. So he writes about the romantics, like the German romantics, the French romantics. He writes about classical literature, literature from all different cultures and eras. But when he lectures publicly, it's only on British literature and Dante. And he does this in England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Italy. He even travels to the US and Canada in 1872 to give for a lecture tour and thousands, literally thousands, people packed the halls to hear him when he was over here in North America. And he taught in the classroom. Um, And in fact, being a social reformer, he numbers amongst the first English literature professors, amongst the first English literature professors, period, but um, in particular, um, teaching in the first college for tertiary education for women in England, um, Bedford College. He's, he was a very vocal and practical advocate for women's education and working class education and um, non-conformist education for people who did not, um, for non-Anglicans, uh, which in England until that point in time, you had to be Anglican to get a university degree. Now, you've mentioned a couple of big names in that story of his life, but the list just keeps going on. I remember being quite mm-hmm. shocked when I found out all the people that he counted as friends and people he connected with, like Walt Whitman, Henry Longfellow, Lewis Carroll, Mark Twain. He really is an amazingly well-connected guy that a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Fantasties. First of all, how do you pronounce it? Because I've heard several different versions. <laughs> yeah, um, there are multiple different ways to pronounce Fantasties, but the majority of McDonald's scholars do pronounce it Fantasties. Yeah. But you should feel That's fine good for me. however you're comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> well, my next question is when people start reading Chesterton or they tell me they're about to start reading Chesterton, mm-hmm. they always head straight for orthodoxy and I always tell them to stop straight away. Mm-hmm. I encourage them to begin with some Father Brown mysteries, get used to the way that he writes. Would you recommend Fantasties be someone's first McDonald book? No, I have the exact same response as you. And I would throw it, you know, well down the list after about five or six or seven other reads. And I would put Lilith way further down the list. If you actually want to feel like you're getting the text and enjoying the book. Um, and which, which book should I That's read That's funny. First? That was Before the first Fantasy? of his books I read. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I always I get really frustrated when I have um, professors tell me that that's, that's I mean, if they're teaching a class on the Inklings, that they know they should teach some McDonald first, so they teach Lilith. And it's his most difficult book. It's a beautiful book. It's a very deep book. It requires many, many reads, but it's not the place to start. Um, and I think they actually do McDonald disservice. 
um, starting there. So first read, what would I, you know, what would I ask my, you know, colleagues to teach or ask my friends to recommend? It depends on the reader. McDonald's such a diverse writer. Um, some people don't enjoy fantasy at all. And so Lewis would say, go to Unspoken Sermons, read Unspoken Sermons, definitely. He actually has quite a bit. He writes more realistic fiction than he does fantasy writing. Lewis's favorites amongst the realistic fiction include What's Mine's Mine, which is an adventure that happens in Scotland, and I would say is McDonald's ecological novel, really fighting for care, stewardship of the land. Um, and he especially loves Sir Gibby as well, which is a beautiful novel. Sir Gibby has some Scottish dialect in it, some Doric, um, which is the, is the native dialect of that part of Scotland. And that has deterred some people from reading his Scottish novels. There's only 12 Scottish novels. So MacDonald has written a lot that does not have Scottish dialect. But there is currently a team of people publishing all of the Scottish novels with parallel text, um, which has never been done before. David Jack, um, who lives in, you know, he's an Aberdeenshire boy and he is, he, they're producing the novels in a way that you just have the normal novel. And then whenever you get to dialect, um, they have both the English and then the Doric side by side. So you don't lose any real MacDonald. And David is holding up for me to see um, an edition of Sir Gibby in which that's been done, um, <laughs> published by Jess Liederman and the translation work done by David Jack. And it's wonderful because you don't lose a single word of MacDonald. And actually, if you want to start trying to track it in the Doric as well, you can. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is this only occasionally does that happen, that most of it's just in normal English. And of course, all the English novels are in normal English. You know, Twain's kids, Mark Twain, you mentioned, his children wore out their copy of Back the North Wind. And so he wrote to McDonald asking for a replacement copy because it was so worn out. Chesterton, <laughs> when Chesterton was asked, um, I can't remember the exact question, whether it was his favorite book or the most important thing he read. Chesterton's response was the one book that changed the entire way I see the world was The Princess and the Goblin. So that's where Chesterton might have you start because he talks about how the princess and the goblin changed his whole worldview and something that he, he said he would still name that as the book, even, you know, whether as a Protestant or a Catholic, that would be the book that, um, yeah, he says most, most shaped his own worldview. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's, it's a hard question to answer, but if you love fantasy, read the princess books and then read some of the short stories, some of the fantastical short stories. If you're not so much into fantasy, read some of the realistic novels, including some of the realistic short stories, of which there are many, um, and some really interesting ones. Um, unspoken sermons for theology. But if you're a Chesterton fan, if you're a Tolkien fan, if you're a Jack fan, and you want to understand some of the roots of their own thinking on imagination and the importance of imagination theologically, you must read the long you know, 20 pages long, but seminal essay called The Imagination, Its Functions, and Its Culture. And you will understand where ethics and Elfland comes from. You will understand where on fairy tales comes from. You'll understand where on stories comes from. They all have their roots in that really quite seminal essay. 
Okay, so our listeners now know where to begin. Uh, but is is this the problem? Is this why so many people start Fantasties and don't finish it? <laughs> is it because they just try it too soon? Or let me let me put this another way: What tips do you have for people who want to read Fantasties? How should how should they approach it? How should they think it? How should they read it? Yeah, yeah. So go ahead and read one of, you know, a handful of, of the lists that I've mentioned. Read a couple fairy tales first or a novel too first so you can understand, so you can get to know MacDonald, the man, a little bit better. You know, become friends with MacDonald because I think that will help you once you are in sympathy with the reader, with the writer, that will help you to read in a way that you that leads you to desire to understand um, the adventure you're being taken on. You will trust him more. And I think Fantasties is different enough of a story that if you don't know MacDonald, you don't know whether you trust him or not, enough to follow the story. And maybe knowing that some of these other writers like Lewis loved him is not enough to really help you trust him. So go play in some of the other places. See his deep love of God, his way of viewing the world, nature, imagination, and then come back and start Fantasties. Um, but I think one of the really key things to remember with Fantasties, which is McDonald's first novel, is written in 52, I think, 1852, it's very early on, is this novel is being written at a time in which really the penny novel doesn't exist yet. Magazines and journals are just starting to happen. So this whole concept of reading a book once and getting it isn't really part of the culture yet. You know, Lewis talks in one place about how he reads a novel for the first time to figure out the plot and the characters, and he rereads to gain wisdom and strength. And Victorian readers and all the readers before the Victorian readers, you would have never expected to read a book once and get it. And I think you have to go into Fantasties understanding that this is a book of deep things, of important things, of beautiful things that you will not be able to completely absorb on one read or two reads or three reads. You know, Lewis reads it his whole life for a reason. Now, he's as a teenager, first read, he loves it. He's delighted by it. He's got a bit of an, um, a little way in because he already knows the fairy queen. He loves the King Arthur stories. He's read quite a bit himself already, and that helps him access it the first time. But it's also a book that he continues to get better and better through the years. And I think, I think it kind of behooves us. It helps us um, to remember that McDonald's right in an area where people carry their favorite books in their pocket to pull out to read little snippets of on the train. You know, nobody... Nobody read a book once, but also people didn't read in a solitary fashion as much either. And I'd love to invite listeners to consider reading Fantasties in community, not just to not read it once, but read it in community. Well, let's go back to 1852. What's happening in England in 1852? It's that era is the revival of medievalism. People are rediscovering all the medieval yeah. texts. In fact, McDonald's professor, A.J. Scott, is a big, um, big player in that. He's, he's down there finding Beowulf and saying to audiences, hey, you're all obsessed with what's happening on the continent. This is a really cool story that's from our continent. 
Um, and all these tomes are being rediscovered. Um, Mallory's being translated again for the first time in literally centuries. So Britain is rediscovering the Arthurian tales, the medieval tales. And people are really excited about it. And that, that's why when you look at Victorian um, tapestries or arts, you see so many you know, pre-Raphaelites. The Union in Oxford, the, the students' room, you see all these Arthurian tales and pictures. The Queen's robing room um, in London has Arthurian tales on it because this, this is all coming out of this medieval revival. However, it sort of is be moving beyond, cool, these are the stories we lost from our culture to kind of being pop culture. Um, so if you want to sell your soap, you smack an Excalibur soap and a picture of a sword on your soap <laughs> and you will sell it better. If you want to sell a, a stove, you call it a Galahad stove. And I'm not making this stuff up. This was really happening because it was so trendy. Medieval stuff became so trendy that it was popping up in advertising and the best I can think of is like, in some ways it's taking the vampire stories and turning them into twilight. You know, so just making them light and fluffy, so fun stories, but there's no depth to it. Um, or arguably, you know, I don't want to be too damning of a, of a book that I have not, I, I've not read myself. Um, but people aren't taking the stories seriously anymore. And Lou and McDonald is, concerned about this because he sees these stories as an important part of British heritage and even British Christian heritage that have a lot of import. Um, these are stories that should not be treated as fodder, as candy, but there's depth to them um, and things within them that can change the readers. And so out of his concern for this, his concern for what has entered even into the British identity of what is it to be a British gentleman? A British gentleman is chivalric. You know, it enters into conversations of nationalism, um, the, of colonialism. Come be, you know, come be a British, a gallant British man. And McDonald wants to say to all the people around him who are getting caught up in this medievalism that isn't true medi medievalism. What were these stories really about? You're treating them like pop culture. But there, there's so much more to them. They're part of who we are. Stories are important. And so he writes a story about a young man who's just finished university, who's turning 21. He's come home to the family estate. He's about to take on the responsibility for his sisters, for the farm laborers. And he's all caught up in the pop culture. What does his bedroom look like? It's got pre-Raphaelite you know, um, curtains on his bed and it's got a pre-Raphaelite style um, rug on the floor. It's all, you know, it's all knights of chivalry and, and light medievalism. But McDonald makes very clear in the early pages of the story that the young man does not know stories well. His little sister reads fairy tales, but he doesn't read fairy tales well. He knows nothing about his family history. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know the stories out of which he has come. All he wants to be is a knight, a dashing knight in shining armor. And so MacDonald pulls him into a story that asks, what does it truly mean to be chivalric? What does being a knight really mean? What does the English word knight actually mean? 
And the English word canite actually means one who serves. And so Anados enters a journey discovering what is a true knight? Um, is it something bound by gender? Is it something bound by deed? Is it something bound by charm and glory, nobility, class? And all those things are challenged um, at a very deep level in this story. And the story, it doesn't ruin the story to let you know that at the end of the story, Anados is a bit like the Pevensey kids. Um, he reaches the end of the story and is returned to his world with the question, okay, how do I take what I've learned here in Fairyland, in Narnia, and how do I apply it to my world here? Has it actually changed me? Does a story, does dwelling within a story change me enough to be different in this world? There's many different themes and ideas, many different stories that shape Fantasties. You could spend a lifetime studying Fantasties as did C.S. Lewis. But I think if you follow the journey with Anados and if you're willing to be, to humbly seek with him what it means to be a true knight, that, well, the story will be dangerous for you too, like it was for Lewis. Lewis's is dangerous. It changed who he was forever. And I think it is a story that has that potential if you're willing to step into it with Anadosa, follow him on his journey. But I do think reading some other McDonald first will help you be in sympathy with the writer and help you to enter the story humbly, um, looking looking to adventure with him instead of watching him. Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> I hear the call for final drinks at the bar. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, I have a website, kirstenjeffreyjohnson.com. Um, and there's multiple links there. And then definitely go check out the George MacDonald Society website too. Um, and there's lots of links to great resources there, um, links to some of the stuff I've done, but also some great videos from our president, Malcolm Guite, and lots of other McDonald's scholars, and um, links to various events that we have coming up. On the George McDonald website, you can also actually find a link to a video that I did that's an introduction, an hour-long introduction to Fantasties. So that may be helpful to go check that out. And the Rabbit Room, rabbitroom.com has a whole um, book course on Fantasties that the class that is now complete, but you can go and listen in on the discussions of the class. And I think that will be really helpful for people trying to find their way through the text. Well, thanks again to Kirsten for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Anonymous, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this dive into McDonald's, please send us some messages via our website, pintswithjack.com, so that we know to prioritize McDonald's next season. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Slosh. <laughs> <laughs>